So good morning. I'm happy that you're here. I'm Joel, and we're in 1 John chapter 3 today. We're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, on your devices. You also find it wonderfully printed in your bulletin. Now, as you've turned there, I'm going to reiterate, I am glad you're here today. But today I feel the need to warn you. There was a guy who went to church one day, a day very much like today. And when he was there, he was totally traumatized by the experience, completely undone. He ended up writhing around on the floor. Seriously, it's a true story. What happened, Joel? <laughs> Well, here's what took place. He went to church, just like any other day, and something unexpected happened. What happened? God showed up. The almighty, awesome, invisible, immortal God showed up. In all his holiness, God's glory filled the entire place. This guy suddenly found himself in the midst of mighty angels who are covering their faces because of the glory of God, and they're all proclaiming how wonderful and glorious God was. Can you imagine? Talk about sensory overload. This man was so awestruck by what suddenly he found by going to church that he thought it was doomsday. He fell on the ground and began cursing himself saying, Woe is me, for I have seen God face to face. For homework later, I invite you to look up Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6, the day that God showed up in the temple. And I thought it might be a good idea to warn you this morning, because it's possible that you came here this morning, like every other Sunday morning, and perhaps with very little awareness that the God we worship actually causes crisis when he truly shows up, when you experience him. Again and again in the Bible, you see this. At the same time, there's absolutely nothing better that could happen to you and I today than to experience his holy and awesome presence. So I'm going to invite God to show himself here and now as we prepare to read this word from the Lord. And I invite you to join me in prayer, if you dare. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, the heavens and the earth are filled with your glory and all the angel hosts proclaim your matchless praise. And Father, we're inviting you to make yourself known this morning. We confess we might be terrified by such a thought. At the same time, we know that you want us to experience you. There's nothing better we to experience today. So we pray that your son Jesus will show up so that we might see you, that the preacher will go away, that the power of your spirit will fill every heart in this room, that we might be changed and able more and more to glorify you like all the mighty angel hosts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. By this... We know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. We return to this letter from John and he likely is the last living apostle at the time he writes this. And he's writing this because he wants you and I to know Jesus, the very Son of God who he experienced in the flesh. And he wants you to know that you too can know Jesus. This letter that he's writing is actually a personal invitation for you to fellowship with the Son and with the Father. It's incredible. John wants you to know that you are made to glorify and to enjoy the Father and the Son, the very God who created you, to have a relationship with Him. And more, John wants you to know how you can know that you really do know Him. Truly, really, intimately. Which is why He gave us a series of three tests so that you can have assurance that you weren't fooling yourself, you truly have a relationship with God. We had first the obedience test. Are we trusting God's commands and obeying them? Second, there's the love test. Are we loving those who belong to Jesus, those around us? And then number three was the truth test. Are we holding fast to the real, the original Jesus? The one we find in the Bible, not one that we've constructed and made up in our mind. Actually, you have all three in today's text. That's why I bring it up. Loving other believers, keeping the commands, and being of the truth. And if you've been with us through this series, you've seen these three tests or these three themes. They're like everywhere in 1 John. This letter is kind of like a pond in which John keeps tossing stones from three bags. He has truth stones, love stones, and he has obedience stones. And he tosses them in and the ripples just seem to run together, right? Well, the biggest ripple in today's text is truth. Truth. Verse 19. Look at verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. John wants us to know and be able to reassure our hearts that we are of the truth. That our spiritual reality is we are really in fellowship with God, with Jesus. And of course, this truth though, it comes on the heels of a love ripple verses 16 to 18. I want to revisit these. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed 
and truth. We ended on these verses last week. We need to revisit them because it's a really simple point. Love is the proof we have spiritual life and self-sacrifice is the proof that we have spiritual love. The love that we see at the cross where Jesus laid down his life. We only know what love is and how to love by looking at Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if you're exploring Christianity, perhaps you're online, Jesus' death might not get you that excited. I mean, how does the death of this man 2,000 years ago prove God's love for me? How does that act, as impressive as it is, right? He died in a horrible way. How is that relevant to me today in the 21st century? Well, James Denny gives the illustration of sitting on a pier on a sunny day. And someone might say to him, I'm going to jump in the water and drown to prove my love for you. And while he would find that act to be pretty impressive as he watched this man drowned in front of him, he would find the love unintelligible, even if he was in need of being loved. But all that changes, he says, if in the second case, he is falling off the pier and he's drowning. And then this man jumps in to save him. And the next day he wakes up in the hospital and he's alive. But he finds out that the man who jumped off the pier drowned, saving him in his place, died in his place. Everything changes in those two circumstances, right? At that moment in the hospital, he's going to say, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life so that I might live. What's the difference? In case two, he sees his need that necessitated this man's death. And friends, we'll never understand the nature of God's gift if we don't understand the nature of our need. If you buy your teenage son deodorant for the first time as like a Christmas gift, it is because there is a need. Whether or not you tell him that, the fact is he stinks. Friends, the Bible tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against holy God. They were infected by the stink of sin and placed under the sentence of death. All humanity was brought into an estate of sin and misery, desperate and dying. That's our condition. Look at our world. Can we be real about it? So in love, Father God sent his son to be our substitute, his death for ours. You realize the Bible says it took nothing less than the death of the eternal son of God to save you? So it is worth considering, if you're a not yet Christian, your situation. Do you live in the land of dying? the dying? Are you under the sentence of death and it's only a matter of time before you drown? Because if true, the Bible says about Jesus, no one has loved you more or better. And if you take a hold of that love, having been loved by Jesus like this, the result is, uh, the result of being so loved is that you will want to love others in self-sacrificial ways. That is what will happen. That's why John adds verse 17, although he goes on to say, not all of us are called to lay down our lives literally. Not all of us are called to be firefighters running into a burning building and maybe we don't get out. But all of us do have gifts that we're called to share with those who are in need, those who are less fortunate than us. Psalm 41, as Mark pointed out, we are called to consider those who are poor. You cannot simply, like James says, 
see a poor brother in the street, cold, shivering, no food, and hey, be warmed and filled. See you later. No, the Christian who understands the gospel takes it serious that we're called to lay down our lives, share our gifts with others in need. I'll just say I'm so happy to see this kind of culture being created here at Heart City Church. I've been the recipient, my wife and I, just this last week by numerous ones of you helping us in our time of need. So to love like Jesus loved, self-sacrificially, is actually to love in truth. You see how he ended that in verse 18? In truth. That means it's real love. And with that set up, now John throws out the big truth stone. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I'm going to confess this is a difficult passage to understand, even before you translate it to the English. You have this really rare Greek verb, and the construction makes it difficult to arrange. Look up all the different versions, and you'll see, like, wow. That's... And how you hear this, it might be kind of unsettling. Did any of you get uncomfortable when you heard this? Many reformers heard it this way. We can know we're of the truth and reassure our hearts by our self-denying acts, the things we're doing. However, when our hearts condemn us, uh-oh, we must no longer be in the truth. But it gets worse. You'd only have to face the failings that you're able to sense. God is greater than you, and he has x-ray vision. He sees everything, every wrong motive. He sees a whole host of creepy, crawly things in your heart that you're completely unaware of. And he's watching you right now. Anybody want to crawl under your chair right at this point? And it's true that certain actions of ours are self-centered, initiated by our desire to get, instead of self-denying, initiated by our desire to give like Jesus did. We are called to love like Jesus and not with mixed motives and not holding back. You may be doing some good, acting really great. You know, I do all these good deeds and folks see that in the church but you still can't hide your sin from God. Read Acts 5. Ananias comes with a gift for God. Here's what I'm bringing you. But he's secretly holding back. And Peter says that he let Satan fill his heart with lies. You know what happens to Ananias? Dies on the spot. Yes, that's in the Bible, New Testament. And it is true. <clears throat> Well, the question here is whether John wrote to afflict the uncomfortable or afflict the comfortable or to comfort those who are afflicted right now. And I'm going to argue that this verse was given to comfort us because of the context and the end goal. Notice that the end goal is that we will come confidently to God in prayer, asking and receiving for whatever we want, whatever we're desiring. Notice how John describes prayer. I think this is important. We've been talking about this actually in our grow group, about prayer. We've actually been comparing prayer to a wartime walkie-talkie where we're calling in heavenly air support. And that illustration is helpful because we are in a war zone, but it's actually missing what John says is what prayer is. See, a walkie-talkie is given to someone who's at a distance. 
John says prayer is about coming confidently before God's throne, before him, and asking. It's about coming into God's presence. And that's scary. You are coming and you're giving God 100% full attention because he's right there. And by the way, God is then giving you his full attention. How often do we really think about what we do when we all quiet ourselves and we do our congregational prayer? Annie Dillard has this great quote. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we're so blithely invoking as we pray? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should be issuing life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. She may be overstating things here, but I think there's a reality. What do we believe when we come into God's presence in prayer? What are we recognizing happening at that point? It's a scary thing. Read about what happens to people when they encounter God in the Bible. Isaiah, Moses, Habakkuk. Remember Peter? When Jesus suddenly shows this miracle, he falls down. And, Apart from me, I'm a sinful man. They all fall to pieces. Friends, there is no greater trauma. We talk a lot about trauma in our day than to experience the full and complete presence of God. Why is that? Well, remember our context. That's the second thing. How did John begin this letter? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And we can't handle that. What does pure light do to you? What happens when you're in front of one of those makeup mirrors, you know, it has all the lights all around it? You see every imperfection. I see that mark from a bad pimple I had when I was a teenager, still there. We have a lot of ugliness that gets exposed when God shows up. That's why Isaiah fell apart. Friends, Jesus did not preach that you were so wonderful. Jesus preached that God was so beautiful. Our problem is we keep seeking lesser beauties, sex, career, status, all these things, because they seem safer to sinners. We can find our identity in that. But John is saying to us, and he's inviting you, he's saying, don't seek after lesser beauties that can never satisfy and actually aren't safer. They're not safer. He invites us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Yes, that's humbling to walk into the light. But what happens when you walk in the light? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. Like Isaiah found when the angel comes and atones for his sins as he's laying on the floor writhing. He found God's presence to both be, yes, humbling, but so safe. So safe. You see, God is terrifying because he's light. But that light is actually your ultimate happiness. And some of us are afraid, right? The light comes and we're like, 
there's no way I could be granted access. I'll start to, and then I'll be like, oh, nope, you're barred, and I'll be let down. But friends, that's why Jesus put on human flesh, so that sinners could actually approach God and find true beauty. Jesus in human flesh was concealed in the glory of God. It was revealed in the transfiguration, remember? And then they're like, oh. Friends, Christianity is not about better behavior, but about beholding beauty. Beauty that then transforms us and causes us to ask for what is better, to be what is better, and encourages us to obey and to do what is pleasing in God's sight. God's light humbles us because there's nothing that you can hide. But it's also safe because the blood of Jesus was shed to cleanse you from all your sins, all your imperfections. And as a result, I think this is John's point, we can have happy hearts and clear consciences. So back to verse 19. This is a call to look at your sacrificial acts of love and to look for them and to find positive changes in your life, not perfection. Positive changes. If you can look at your heart and find growing trust, new desires to obey Jesus no matter how hard it is. If you're loving in ways that you weren't before, you look back a year ago, two years ago, a week ago, you can reassure your heart if you're seeing positive change. God is at work and your response reveals that you are in the truth, that you're a born again believer, a child of God. Even if what you're feeling at the time is, man, I still messed up a whole lot. No, that's the enemy oftentimes firing darts at you. Never good enough. Never good enough. And verse 20 then is a call for you when you're feeling condemned. Here's what it is. A call to get a second opinion. You know how it is when you start to feel there's something amiss health-wise and what do you do? You instantly start self-diagnosing. Do you know what you should do? Get a second opinion. I'm not talking about Google, okay? John is saying don't self-diagnose. Get into second opinion from Dr. God. From Dr. God. He knows everything about you, including your heart. Yes, you're imperfect, but do you see what you're doing? You're progressing, you're trying. This is a verse of assurance for those longing to live, truly wanting to live as Jesus' disciples. And if you think about it then, God knowing everything about you, everything, is actually the best news possible. J.I. Packer writes this. This is a great quote. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. It's a great quote. This is a word to any of you prodigals who are in the pig pen right now. You can up and leave the mess that you're in. You can go to your father with a million demerits, all this stuff you've done wrong, and all you bring into him is a confession of your sin. And you know what you're going to find? A father who sees you from afar and runs to you because his heart longs for you. He's going to wrap his arms around you, put a robe on you, and throw a party. You can go confidently. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. I feel the need to go a little deeper because many, many of us are not confident still. I've heard folks say this at times, Pastor Joel, I just cannot forgive myself of this or that. Am I speaking to anyone here? There are some of us who can never get past our past or deal with our present failures. Oh, I could have done more. I could have done better. 
Do any of you remember the movie Schindler's List? It came out, I think, my senior year in high school. This black and white movie about World War II. Liam Neeson played the role of real-life hero Oscar Schindler. He was a German industrialist who, during World War II, bribed Nazi officials to spare the Jews that he employed. He opened his heart to those in need with his worldly goods. He, this is what he did. And he ran out of money right as the Germans finally surrendered. And you know what he had done at that point? He had saved 1,100 lives, 1,100 or 1,200 lives. Absolutely incredible. Can you think about it? Do any of you remember how the movie ends? Schindler is there in front of hundreds of thankful Jews who bring him a ring to just give him, commemorate him for all he has done. Think about it. He has saved over a thousand souls from being gassed by the Nazis. I mean, how's that for a resume? Any of you done anything close to that? I don't see any hands up. Schindler is standing there, and instead of joy, instead of peace, he is overcome with grief and he falls to his knees. He has saved a thousand souls, but it's still not enough. He falls to pieces. He sees his car and he says, if I had only sold my car, I could have saved 10 more. And then he pulls a gold pin off. He's like, this is two more Jews, two more lives I could have saved. He can't forgive himself. His heart still condemns him despite all he's done, which is more than any of us have. Why? Because he's trying to measure up to an invisible standard that he intuitively knows is there. And so what has he done? He has established a self-salvation project to make the world better, but he can never do enough because he's trying to be a savior, what only Jesus can be. We may feel the same, right? You see the starving children in a third world country. You hear about hurricane victims or this disaster. Think about all the missions, missionaries, the homeless shelters. Yes, we ought to be doing something. We ought to be opening our wallet. We ought to be praying. We ought to be helping as we're able. But let me ask you, when will you have actually given enough? Should I go home and sell my house? Will that be enough? I would have to sell all my clothes and be naked on the street, right? And I still haven't done enough. Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you. Why did he say that? Because you and I, individually, we can't save the world, and neither can we even do it collectively. Only Jesus can lay down his life and save the world, save every last poor person. Only Jesus. I think there's another reason why we struggle to forgive ourselves. Some of you lament your lost opportunities. Maybe your upbringing wrecked you in many ways. Maybe it's sexual sins. Maybe it's actual crimes you've committed. You say, Pastor Joel, I know that God has forgiven me, but I still can't forgive myself. My heart condemns me. Do you know what you're doing? You're promoting something in your heart over Jesus. That is what you're doing. You're serving something else other than Jesus. You're saying, if only I could have been this, or only if I could have kept from doing this situation, or kept from, if I couldn't have, if I'd actually been able to do this thing others were able to do because I didn't have the opportunities, if only I'd not done this horrible thing, or if only I'd been more pure growing up, if I'd stopped doing this bad thing, if only, 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 what you're saying at that point is you have a source of identity that means more to you than Jesus Christ. 
be it accomplishments, be it career, relationships, be it morality. You're actually worshiping them and seeking to find your identity in them. But friends, Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you couldn't in your place. He became your righteousness, all you need. And remember chapter two, he shed his blood not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Which means he's in heaven right now and he's holding forth an open and shut case for all who believe. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the best news you could ever, ever hear. Jesus wants us to have happy hearts and clear consciences. Jesus says, guess what, brother, sister? I forgive you. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let me ask you, are you going to argue with Jesus? You can forgive me, Jesus, but I won't. You're making something when you say that greater than him. Friends, why would you want to stay shackled when you could experience freedom? Why live in condemnation when Jesus wants you to come confidently? Coming to God, seeking far greater things than you could ever do on your own, by your own plans, by your own agenda. That's what John's getting at. He wants us to ask for bigger requests than we would have before and know that we're going to receive them. Why? Because we're living to please God. We're living to love like Jesus. We're obeying his commands. Now you can see why the prosperity preachers have taken this verse all out of context. Let's move on to our last verses. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. <laughs> John introduces two words here for the first time. The first one, the command to believe. The first time John's used this word, believe. John calls us to believe in Jesus' name, in him, what he's done, who he is, what he's done. Friends, it's about faith in a person, a person we can know intimately, trust completely, and follow his commands because he's bringing us into fellowship with God. Every time you obey Jesus and you don't feel like you want to, he's bringing you into fellowship with God to know him closer. So bang, even when it's hard, because he is leading you to greater beauty and joy than you could ever know. <clears throat> yes, being a Christian is the hardest thing in the world, except for the alternative. Except for the alternative. But wonderfully, we have something Jesus has given us Second word is spirit. This is the first time John has mentioned the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God who helps us to discern the false spirits. And they're out there. They're in our churches all over the place. False spirits that will lead us to reject the original, true, real Jesus. We actually see this in chapter 4. I know I saw Mike getting excited over there because he sees all members now of the Blessed Holy Trinity here in these verses, these closing verses point though here is John wants us to abide in God and God in us and to know that he abides. What's that all about? <laughs> what is that about? Abiding in God, him and us? Well, it's not the best illustration. It was a long week, but um, I've been privileged with Jamie to foster uh, three infants in the last few months. And in pretty short order, I bonded with all three of them. And one of the things you learn about babies, once they bond, they just love to snuggle. 
They just love to snuggle. Little one we currently have, he'll finish his bottle and he'll tuck his head right up in my chest. He just falls asleep and he gets so content. The closer we get, the more content he is. There's like no distance between us. It's hard even to hand him off to my wife. It's hard to know where he begins and I end. That's a picture, I think, of abiding, what it means to be in this kind of intimate fellowship with God, to be resting in the arms of the Father. Do you want to have that sort of fellowship, that sort of relationship with Heavenly Father? Relationship happens as you trust Him and as you keep His commands. You keep His word. You're abiding. That's why I chose John 14, 23 as our new verse of the month. You'll see it underneath our sermon text. This is Jesus speaking here. Let's all listen to Jesus and say together, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's one to bury in our hearts. That's quite the promise. We know Jesus is up in heaven making a home for us. But if we show our love for Jesus by keeping his commands, <laughs> the Father and the Son, they're coming down and they're showing up in our lives. And they're moving in. Anybody want the Father and the Son to move in? It's all about relationship with the Father. Here, that's the big point. Who will never condemn you. It changes everything about those who believe. I'll close with a story that Daniel Aiken tells about a 55-year-old man who once shared with him his conversion, what it means to have a father who doesn't condemn. So he talks about this man who came to trust in Christ at the age of 50, only five years before. He was a recovering alcoholic and drug addict who had multiple failed marriages, all of which were his fault. But he didn't blame anyone, but admitted he had made bad choices and dumb decisions for most of his life. Then with tears streaming down his face, he began to talk about his childhood and a dad who criticized and condemned him at every turn. He said, you know, all I can remember my childhood was my daddy saying things like, boy, you can't do anything right. Boy, you're just downright dumb. Boy, you will never grow up to amount to anything. He then added, I guess I grew up to be exactly what my daddy said I would be. But then with a gentle smile and a twinkle in his eye, he quietly and humbly whispered, but five years ago, when I met with Jesus, I met Jesus, I got a new daddy. And this daddy loves me. He believes in me. He thinks I can do anything. Friends, if you come to Jesus, you have a new father. And he will never, never, never condemn you. He invites you to a better way of living where you can have a heart that is always at rest when you turn to him. And we can live in the truth by loving like his son Jesus, by trusting, obeying, and knowing there's no condemnation. So this week, as you leave here, I want to encourage you to preach the gospel of no condemnation to your soul every morning. Get in front of the mirror. There's no condemnation so that no matter what you face, you can know your father is with you, your father is for you, and he ever will faithful remain with you. Speak to your soul that way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you with the words of a hymn. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. 
So bold, we approach your eternal throne and we claim the crown through Christ our own. Father, thank you for this wonderful good news. Help us to truly take a hold of it and to live as you want us to live, knowing that you're going to happify us every step of the journey. And we want to know you and love you and just declare your glory to a watching world. Equip us now, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.